a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 112 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on the social media outlet of your choosing. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Shold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at sholdmediagroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D mediagroup.com. This episode is recorded in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio in my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. And the guest this week, even though it's one day late because I have been in the middle of covering what seems like it might be the last collegiate tournament that's actually going to happen this year in winter sports, the National Junior College Division Three Tournament in Rochester, Minnesota. It started on Wednesday, March 11th with four games. And then we had six yesterday on Thursday. But yesterday on Thursday, all of the announcements that every other major league and tournament is shutting down. And it's been extremely bizarre, to say the least, watching everything happen. And from my point of view as a freelance sportscaster, it goes beyond bizarre and it's a little bit concerning, a lot bit concerning actually, because that's how I make my living. And if there's no sports, I don't know what we're going to do during this spring as we try to build my streaming sportscasting business and account on other freelance positions. And they're just not happening. I can tell you that right now the school I cover has been shut down until further notice as far as activities. The school is still open, but activities have completely stopped. So it's a weird time here in sports. But I did get a nice podcast recorded with Sean McDonough. He's at ESPN. He's also one of the radio broadcasters for the Boston Red Sox on WEEI. And again... I've had this recorded for a while, didn't have time to get it edited, get the show notes ready on the normal Thursday. So we are one day late releasing this, and I appreciate your understanding. And I just like to think it makes the anticipation a little bit better. I do want to apologize. There's some minor audio issues on this. Uh, An average listener would probably barely notice, but I have a lot of radio guys and audio files that probably will. I don't know exactly what happened, but the mic settings got thrown off, and it may be fixed with a little bit of processing, but it may not. So if it's not, I appreciate you dealing with it for one episode. We'll try to make sure that it's cleaner going forward. But anyway, I hope everybody is having a great week. I hope everybody is safe and healthy because ultimately having some inconvenience for the sports and entertainment world and for freelance broadcasters to have to struggle a little bit for what's hopefully a short amount of time uh, is well worth it if it saves lives and that's ultimately what it comes down to and we've never seen anything like this in my lifetime at 34 I've heard much older people say that hopefully it's a once in a lifetime occurrence and it gets taken care of and contained and I'm not smart enough to really even begin to comment on what is happening but My hope is that it ends up being an overreaction and that it's not as serious as it it appears it might be. But to be on the right side of the history, it's better to overreact than just to wait and see what happens and potentially have it get worse. So this week, again, we talk with Sean McDonough. And 
I don't really have much else to say. I'm recording this really early in the morning because I have to go to the last games of the tournament in Rochester that will get finished. They're condensing it down to one day, so we'll have two semifinal games in the championship today if you're listening to this on time. But then the tournament will be over, and I don't know when the next time I'll be broadcasting a game will be. So here's the podcast with Sean McDonough of ESPN and the Boston Red Sox. So now after that, I want to move into your choice to go to Syracuse because what I read, it was not getting in to Notre Dame that eventually led you to going to Syracuse and taking that route. Obviously, it ended up being a blessing in disguise, but what was your attitude like at the at the beginning of that stage? Were you upset or were you just, hey, I'm 17, 18, I'm going to college, I'm going to have fun either way? <laughs> uh, I was upset. You know, as an Irish Catholic kid growing up in South Boston, you know, just always loved Notre Dame. When I went for a visit in high school, it really cemented that that's where I wanted to go. We were there on a beautiful fall day, actually tagging along with my dad as he covered some NFL games in the Midwest. And uh, so when I didn't get in, I was disappointed. But, you know, I've told this story many times. It's kind of a joke I tell, usually at Syracuse functions. You know, I've always been a believer since a young kid that. God has a plan for our lives, and you know, part of my plan was to go to Notre Dame, and and then Notre Dame had a plan for my life, which did not involve me going to their university. So, uh, I wound up at Syracuse, you know, knowing really in my mind that it was probably uh, the best place for me. You know, as I said earlier, it, it already had a well-established reputation for turning out great sports broadcasters. So. Um, you know, once I got there, it didn't take very long for me to realize that it was the right place for me. You know, I loved it almost immediately. And uh, outside of the academic part, you know, I had the opportunity for the last three and a half years, I was a student there to work as a work-study student for our football coach, Dick McPherson, who's in the College Football Hall of Fame now, who became a great influence on my life. He was really a second dad to me. And like my own dad, was another great example of you know, how you should treat people uh, as you go about your business, especially somebody who's in the public eye. So, you know, that became uh, an enormous blessing in my life, too. Matter of fact, one of the great honors in my life was when he passed away a couple of summers ago. His family asked me to give his eulogy, which is very emotional for me because I uh, just loved the man so much. But uh, Syracuse was a great place and uh, had a lot of opportunities while I was in school that I think I wouldn't have had had I gone anywhere else, most notably the chance to broadcast AAA baseball uh, while I was still in college as a 19, 20, 21-year-old. You know, I don't think that would happen many other places, if anywhere. Not getting into Notre Dame is certainly nothing to hang your head about. Most people don't. I'm sure that I would not have, uh, as, especially as an out-of-state person. But I just made me wonder, what was Sean McDonough like as a student? You know, I was a good student. Um, you know, I graduated with high honors. I think I had close to a 3.8 uh, when I graduated. You know, I was a, obviously a broadcast journalism major and a political science minor. Back then, I thought I might want to delve into government or politics. I'm really glad that I didn't, given what a nasty world that is <laughs> these days in today's world. So, uh, no, I was a good student. You know, I, I'd like to say I worked really hard at it. I worked hard at it most of the time, but, um, you know, I enjoyed college too. You know, Syracuse was a fun place to go and, uh, I certainly had more than my fair share of fun. And at Syracuse, I think it's interesting that you brought up coach McPherson because I was uh, watching a video. I th- it was probably of one of those tributes to him that you actually were having trouble paying for college, and all of a sudden, after you told him, a scholarship showed up in the mail for the amount that you needed. Uh, tell us that story yeah, and what that meant that, to that's, you. Uh, I told that story at his eulogy, and again, when uh, Syracuse gave me an alumni honor last fall during homecoming. Yeah, I was. I think it was the middle of my sophomore year. I was home in Boston for the Christmas break, and you know, we got had the bill for the next semester, which I couldn't afford to pay. You know, there were a lot of things going on in our family at the time, and uh, and I was working for coach and working some other jobs too, just trying to make enough money. But you know, even back then, you know, relative to people's income, uh, college was very expensive, and I just didn't have enough money. I think I was about thirty-seven hundred dollars short, and uh, I called Coach Mack just to thank him for the great privilege of working with him and for 
his love and friendship. And, uh, but I told him I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to come back for the next semester. And we were talking about, he asked me in the course of the conversation, how short I was. And I told him uh, it was about $3,700. And then, uh, within a day or two, uh, I got a phone call from the financial aid office at the university saying I was receiving an academic scholarship for $4,000 for the next semester. So uh, I don't know if coach paid that out of his own pocket. Um, uh, wouldn't surprise me if he did. You know, he certainly, when I called him to tell him what had happened, he said he, you know, had nothing to do with it, which I think it might be the only time I think I heard him say something that was not truthful. But, um, yeah, that's uh, is a reason why, I, as I said, I was so emotional uh, when he passed because, uh, you know, had he not uh, gone to that length to help me, uh, I wouldn't have stayed at Syracuse, and I'm sure my entire life would be completely different. Everybody has to have somebody who has their back in some way or another at those, for lack of a better word, crisis points. Uh, how important was it to have not only him, but other people who have helped you along the line? And give us some examples of that happening in your journey. Oh, I think, well, he's certainly one of them. Um, you know, it's just in uh, the your personal life too. You know, we, uh, as I said, we had a lot of stuff happening when I was a kid and my parents uh, got divorced when I was very young, when I was 11. And, you know, my aunt, uh, who was a nun, sister Mary Martina had been in Japan for 28 years. She came back and moved in with us and basically raised us, you know, so she, she basically gave up her life to help me and my brother and sister and, um, you know, the, the minor league baseball thing that I mentioned, you know, a lot of uh, teams wouldn't have, college kids announcing their games, but Tex and John Simone, who ran the Syracuse Chiefs, they were father and son, you know, they gave students the opportunity. You know, if it hadn't been for that, the chance to do 400 or so minor league games, one level below the major leagues, there's no way I would have been broadcasting Major League Baseball for the Red Sox when I was 25. You know, I think anybody who hires you along the way takes a chance on you, especially when you're young and relatively inexperienced. You know, you owe those people a debt of gratitude. So, you know, obviously Dan Burkery, who was at WSBK TV here in Boston, who hired me to do the Red Sox games when I was 25 years old. Uh, he took a major chance. And, you know, as he said to me, this is the most important thing on our station. It's the highest rated broadcast. It's the biggest revenue generator. You know, it's, it was very important for him in terms of pleasing his bosses. So, you know, you know that people take chances on you when they put you in high profile situations and uh, or any situation really. And you hope you reward their belief in you by doing the best possible job that you can. Certainly a motivator to work hard and make sure that you're at your best because you want to you know, be loyal to and uh, thankful for the people who help you. The last thing I read before calling you up and getting you on the horn uh, was this. And so if I have, a l I didn't get to read the entire article. So correct me if I'm wrong on any things, but I read that Briefly, WAER, which is the radio station at Syracuse, if anyone's listened to more than one episode of this podcast, they probably know that. And they briefly shut down, and not necessarily as a radio station, but as a student-operated radio station, and tried to remove the students from it. And I read that you were a key person in keeping the students involved uh, in that process at WAER. Uh, just tell us that story and... What happened exactly there? Well, it's a good question, Logan. I still don't really understand the logic of it from the university's vantage point. Now, obviously, that was a long time ago. We're talking about the the early 80s when I was a student there. But, you know, the, the radio station, WAER, had existed for decades. Uh, obviously, you know, it's a very successful college radio station entirely run by students. I mean, managed by students, programmed by students, staffed by students. It was an entirely a student enterprise funded by students as part of the uh, student activity fee that everybody pays each semester on campus. So uh, the chancellor at the time, the, the late Melvin Eggers, decided that he didn't really like it. I don't think he liked some of the music that was being played. Uh, I don't think he liked some of the things he heard on talk shows. And he just decided that the university was going to take it over. It was licensed to the university. Uh, he was going to hire a full-time uh, general manager. Uh, they were going to dramatically reduce the uh, number of students who were on the air and turn it into an NPR station. So uh, that's essentially what they did. I mean, we uh, basically all the students there, uh, or most, the vast majority of them quit. 
uh, and the station went off the air for a while. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, I think it was really a sad chapter in the history of Syracuse University, to be quite honest. I mean, I think uh, the, the best experience that I had, you know, even Ted Koppel back then, who was, uh, you know, a huge star in the business on his uh, nightly show, uh, on ABC, you know, he, 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 his slogan was let the students run it. That's what he said when we reached out to him. And that became, kind of came the rallying cry for the university, but the chancellor didn't care. You know, he said, you can get an education in the classroom. <laughs> like, well, yeah, you can, but you learn a lot more with hands-on experience and, uh, you know, doing these things and developing your own style and being on the air all the time. So I think it's still a sad chapter. You know, WAR has rallied very nicely over the years, uh, you know, some of the other campus media sprung up and I think almost benefited from it. So uh, it's still a great place, but I don't think that was a great uh, time in the history of the university, that's for sure. It said that you were one of the people who were kind of rallied to get students back on the air. What did you do? Were you standing there with picket signs? or uh, what, No, what was you know, I, I wasn't big on getting the students back on the air. You know, I, I was... Uh, uh, you know, I was sort of the one, I was one of the ones who said I'd, I'd rather leave and not be here anymore. At a certain point, though, you realize that you're, you know, you're there to get an education. Um, they did open the student the station back up with, you know, dramatically fewer students. But, um, you know, it left a sour taste in my mouth to the point where, you know, I haven't talked about this too much publicly, but uh, a lot of times over the years with the student, you know, you get the phone calls from the uh university to give money to the university. You know, I told him I'm not giving a nickel to that place until Melvin Eggers is no longer the chancellor. And I didn't. So, um, you know, as I said, it's, uh, it's up and running now. It's still producing. I mean, you see a lot of these young guys who are on there, younger guys, you know, Kevin Brown, I saw on the game the other night. Uh, he's an up and coming star, I think at ESPN, obviously Jason Benetti uh, was well after me. You know, he, he did games at WAER. Uh, you know, Carter Blackburn, there's plenty of guys who went through there who uh, did well. So students are still there. There are just fewer of them than there used to be, which I think is uh, too bad. And let's move on from your college experience. I want to get into one of your internships, and then we're going to jump forward, fast forward a little bit. But uh, when you were with the Enterprise Radio Network, I think, in 1981 as an intern, you ended up living as a roommate with Kevin Harlan. How did that come about? <laughs> I tell you what, you've done your research, and I don't even know how you found that out, but, uh, you know, that's a true story. You know, I, my freshman year at Syracuse, before Coach Mack got there, uh, my, fall of my freshman year, I worked for an associate athletic director named Joe Gallagher, who kind of ran the Syracuse University radio network and some of the marketing stuff with the athletic department. And, he left to go to Enterprise Radio on the production side. That was kind of his background. And he was hiring interns for the summer. So he knew of me and knew that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Enterprise Radio was kind of designed to be ESPN Radio. Unfortunately, it was just a little bit too far ahead of its time, I think. But it was about 13 hours a day of the national sports talk show, and then they had some sports updates in there as well. Had a lot of talented people who were on the air, you know, including John Sterling. He did a talk show host that I think most of your listeners would know. He's, you know, the longtime voice of the New York Yankees now. But uh, they sent me a letter. They said, you know, here are the other interns. It was just sort of an informational thing more than anything. Here's when we want you to report. And I showed my dad the letter, and one of the interns' name was Kevin Harlan from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And as you probably know, Logan, you know, Kevin's dad, Bob Harlan, was a longtime president of the Green Bay Packers. So, my dad saw the name. He said, you know, that has to be Bob Harlan's son. So uh, he called Bob Harlan. My dad and Bob knew each other, were friendly. And, he, and Bob said, sure enough, that's my son. He's already found a place to stay. He was, he's renting an upstairs bedroom in this uh, widow's house, Woman, wonderful woman named Dora Stearns, who lived by herself. And uh, so I talked to Kevin. Sure enough, she had another upstairs bedroom and another bathroom. And so uh, Kevin and I lived in the same house that summer, had a fantastic time, and Mrs. Stearns was awesome. She cooked for us, which was an unexpected blessing, and probably kept us out of McDonald's for the whole summer. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, and it was the start of a great friendship. I mean, Kevin remains a, a dear friend, and uh, we, we text a lot, talk periodically, and you know, used to run into each other a lot when I was doing the Monday night uh, TV, and he was doing Monday night football on the radio. So... 
Yeah, he's been a, a friend since our, I guess, the summer after our freshman year in college, and he was at Kansas and I was at Syracuse. Could you recognize the talent in each other at that time and at that age? And what did you do to push each other and help each other? Well, I recognized his talent. You know, a lot of people talk about um, when they come to Syracuse, they think, oh, my God, look, these kids are sophomores in college and listen to them on the air. And, you know, that's kind of the experience I had when I heard Kevin. You know, he was much more organized and, you know, it just, uh, you know, I was just kind of a college kid hoping to do this. You know, Kevin had resume tapes and wouldn't surprise me if he had business cards back then. I mean, he was just uh, you know, kind of older than his years, although still a lot of fun to hang around with. But, uh, yeah, I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this because I'm not as good as, as, as Kevin is. So, uh, yeah, it made you realize, you know, there are a lot of people around the country your age who are trying to do the same things. We're pretty darn good. and You better make sure you're pretty good, too. Your first really big break after working with the Syracuse Chiefs for that minor league team, and you mentioned this, getting hired for the Red Sox just a few years after college, four or five, I believe, in 1988. Take us through the process of how you landed that position. Well, as I said, by the time I graduated from uh, college, or at least the summer right after I graduated in in uh, the fall and spring of 1984, I finished that minor league baseball season and I had three years of the highest level of minor league baseball. So I was applying for major league jobs, even though I was 22 and, you know, talked pretty seriously to the Chicago Cubs at one time and a couple other teams, but uh, wound up back in Boston. Nesson was just starting. It's, you know, the New England Sports Network, the Bruins and Red Sox had started their own pay cable thing. It was one of the very first in the country. And you know, they were looking for young guys, cheap, I guess, to broadcast a lot of games. You know, I did a lot of college hockey back then, a lot of college soccer, college lacrosse. And uh, I think after one year of that stuff, I started hosting the Red Sox pregame and postgame show. And then WSPK-TV saw me on there, and they had me do similar things for them, you know, hosting the Boston Bruins pregame, postgame, in-between periods, segments, uh, doing a few other things for them. And then um, – in 1988, Ned Martin had been doing all the Red Sox uh, play-by-play on TV for both TV38 and Nesson. At the time, they were pretty much splitting the games. And those two enterprises decided that they you know, should each have their own play-by-play person. So Ned stayed on Nesson, and that's when uh, WSBK, after a lengthy deliberation, I mean, it was probably two months after I interviewed with Dan Berkeley for it, that uh, they made the decision to hire me. And it's one of those interesting things people always say, well, your dad must have helped you, and I, I do think he probably helped me get into Nesson at the very beginning. I don't think there's any doubt about that, although he said he wouldn't. But, you know, Dan Berkeley, when he hired me, said, you know, one of the reasons it took me so long to hire you was your dad. He said, because I didn't want people to think I hired you because of your dad. He said, I don't really know your dad, and I certainly don't know him well enough that I'm going to risk the most important thing on our station to do a favor for him and hire his kid. So... I realized, even though a lot of people may think you know, that you got this job because you're, you're Will's kid, in my mind, it was a negative. And then I, so you said, I finally had to step back and just say, you know, I think you're a talented guy and you've been here at the station and people like you and you deserve this opportunity and you've done all these minor league games, so I'm going to give you the chance. So uh, I was greatly relieved. I, when he called me, Logan, uh, his secretary called me and she said, Mr. Berkeley wants to talk with you and he'd like you to come to his house. And I remember thinking, wow, that's odd. And maybe he doesn't want me to come to the station because he's going to tell me I'm, I'm not going to get it. And he doesn't want the people who I know and work with uh, at the station to see me if I'm upset. And uh, I remember I walked uh, into the front door of the Berkeley's house and Mrs. Berkeley, Liz, was standing in the kitchen. And when I walked in, she gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, maybe this conversation is going to go better than I think. So... Uh, that was the start of a wonderful opportunity there, obviously, but also a, a wonderful friendship with the, the Berkeley family. Dan Berkeley uh, was, to me, a legendary TV executive. He was inducted into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame here a couple of years ago and asked me to, uh, to be his presenter, which meant a lot to me. You know, kind of like my dad and Coach Mack, a uh, guy who has been and continues to be a great influence in my life. He's now retired on... Cape Cod. He's 10 children and 24 grandchildren and uh, a special guy. I found it interesting because being the son of a a prominent columnist to me is different 
than being the voice of a play, the son of a play-by-play person, just because to be a columnist, you have to have strong opinions, which oftentimes can rub executives the wrong way. Was it ever a disadvantage in that people were mad at your father? Uh, oh, yeah, all the time. The Matter of fact, I think uh, when I basically, I don't want to say I got fired by the Red Sox, my contract option was not picked up in 2004. Um, I think it had, you know, my dad was had passed away by then, but you know, they didn't, it was clear that then new owners of the Red Sox didn't like my dad very much. And I think the feeling was mutual. And uh, so, yeah, I think that had uh, something to do with it. You know, I think it was, uh, you know, I certainly got into several animated conversations with Red Sox players at, at that time in those years who were mad about stuff my dad wrote. And I said, you know, I have nothing to do with that. You know, if you have a problem, pick up the phone and call him. But, you know, I don't necessarily share his opinions. I certainly don't provide any sort of inside information to him, nor does he want me to, or would he ever ask me to. Um, so, you know, I got in some tough situations, had some players yelling at me about stuff that my father wrote. And I was like, you know, that's kind of silly. And I said to a couple of the players, that would be like, if you, if you and I had a problem, I would call up your son and yell at him. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, but it happened. So, you know, it, it came with the territory. One of the things I did learn from my dad, one of the many things is if you are going to give your opinion, you are going to be critical, then you have to expect that there's going to be blowback and you better be ready to take it. You know, if you're going to say something one night on the air that uh, might be considered to be critical of a player or a manager, what a coach, you better show up in the locker room the next day before the game and give them the opportunity to say something to you. So you know, those are valuable lessons that I learned along the way too. Different play-by-play guys handle this different as far as being critical of players, coaches, and management and officials. How do, what is your stance on that type of broadcasting? Well, I think we're there to serve the viewer. You know, it's one of the things I love about ESPN. You know, that's basically the mantra, the slogan of uh, the company, the network, to serve the viewer. And I've always thought of that as my role. You know, I, I think I should be talking about what I think I would be thinking about if I was just sitting at home watching the game on TV. If I'm watching a game and, you know, ball drops in the outfield and I thought the guy should have caught it, you know, I, I would expect the announcer to say, you know, that ball should have been caught. You know, I think as announcers, if we start making excuses for players in, in situations like that, then we lose our credibility. Now, it doesn't mean you need to rip people and, call them names and, you know, continue to harangue them when the moment has passed. But I, I don't think acknowledging something that's plainly obvious to the viewer is, should be considered critical. I think it's part of doing our job. You know, uh, I prefer to call it candor, I guess, but you know, sometimes it can rub, especially working for a team. It doesn't always fly very well within the team uh, or the league. You know, I was reported when I left Monday Night Football that the, NFL wasn't always happy with some of my comments about the officiating. So, you know, sometimes I think people just stay away from those sorts of things to try to preserve their own job security. But as I said, I think my number one loyalty is to the viewer and to the people who employ me. And, you know, I think that's what they expect me to do. Talk about whatever is pertinent in the game. You got your big network break in 1990 when you were hired by CBS to do a lot of different things over time anyway. What was the sequence of events that led to that break? Um, I I think I had started ESPN just a little bit before that, and they saw me on there. Um, I was doing some, uh, I think it was Tuesday night baseball. I can't remember which night of the week it was, with Ray Knight was kind of my entree into ESPN. And again, that was just the good fortune of being the Red Sox announcer. And geographically, you know, ESPN's in Connecticut. That's within the Red Sox broadcast footprint. So the executives at ESPN uh, would see me on TV many nights in the summer. A couple of them were Red Sox fans who were involved in the decision-making at the time. So I think, you know, that was just the good fortune of the ESPN people having exposure to the Red Sox telecast. So they brought me in. I think the CBS people saw me on there. Back then, there wasn't as much exclusivity that the networks required or were looking for. Nowadays, it would be very hard to work for ESPN and and CBS at the same time. But back then, it wasn't uh, as difficult. So 
uh, you know, they, uh, I believe my entree into CBS was they were, they needed uh, extra bodies for the NCAA tournament. And I wound up doing about 10 NCAA tournaments there, did some NFL for them, did a lot of college football for them, became their lead college football announcer when CBS lost the NFL and a lot of the other guys left to go elsewhere where there was NFL football. You know, for a while it was just sort of Jim Nance and myself and a couple of other people after, you know, guys like Vern left and Greg Gumbel. And so, uh, you know, was at CBS for a decade. Uh, probably the highlight of that was the the two years of being the play-by-play man for the National Baseball with Tim McCarver in 92 and 93. We had two terrific seasons of, you know, in 92 was the Sid Bream, Francisco Cabrera, Game 7, Pirates, Braves. In 93, it was Joe Carter hitting the home run to win the World Series for the Blue Jays in Game 6. And, uh, you know, but also had a chance to do the Masters four times, the PGA Championship, which as a golfer was a huge thrill for me. And I uh, had a chance to do three Olympics while I was there, including the hockey in Nagano in 1999, did the U.S. Open tennis. So that was a great experience, the, the decade that I spent at, uh, at CBS. And almost all that time I was at ESPN, too, uh, also. Um, I, I was at CBS exclusively from 96 to 99. And then uh, when that ended, I went back to ABC and ESPN full-time. And that's been where I've been ever since. What was your reaction the first time that they said, we want you to become the youngest person to ever broadcast the World Series mm-hmm. on network TV at age 30? Uh, probably very similar to when I got the Red Sox play-by-play job. You know, you're thinking, okay, you're 25 years old. If you don't get it, no big deal. But I knew in my mind it was a big deal because, you know, this opportunity doesn't come along all the time. I mean, the Red Sox announcers at that time were – uh, Ed Martin and Ken Coleman, who had been there for decades, you know, guys don't leave those jobs once they get them. So I never knew if the Red Sox thing would ever open up again. And I realized when you know my name was being mentioned as a candidate to replace Jack Buck, which I still find mind-boggling because I think Jack Buck's one of the top, the very top play-by-play people of all time. Um, you know, again, trying to be measured about it, but you also realize you know this opportunity isn't going to come along again. So. Yeah, I was ecstatic. You know, I, I you, when I sat there and thought about, you know, who are the people over the last few decades who've had the chance to broadcast the World Series on national TV? It's, it was very few people. And, you know, to be the youngest at the time, Joe Buck has since uh, broken that, but um, to be the youngest at the time was uh, head spinning, really. And it was an opportunity I was very grateful for. You know, it was sad that CBS lost the contract after two years because that was the kind of thing you hope to do forever. You know, I think someone like Joe has had the good fortune. You know, I think he's tremendous, but, you know, he's also been blessed that, you know, Fox has kept the World Series for all these many years, because those are the kinds of things, the business part of it, that are out of our control. So you, you, know, you never know how long you're going to have the opportunity when it comes. You also, you mentioned you were part of two different Olympic games, maybe more than that. The two that I found that I was most interested in were uh, the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer. Uh, hopefully I said that right. But mm-hmm. that was the Tanya Harding Olympics, uh, where that kind of took over all of popular culture. That was one of the first sports stories that I really remember doing that uh, in my childhood. Uh, what was? I know you didn't directly cover that sport. Were you taking in what was going on around it, or were you just insulated in your bubble covering what you were supposed to cover? Uh, mostly the latter, um, you know, the Olympics were fun in 92 and 94. I did the, in Albertville and Lillehammer, I did the bobsled and luge and you really are, you know, the bobsled and luge goes on for a long time. You know, some of these events are only a couple of days within the two week, you know, uh, time frame of the Olympics, but the bobs and luge men's women's went on, uh, you know, for a long time. So, uh, and, and a lot of the times in those places, it's difficult to get around, too. You're in small towns, mountain towns with a lot of traffic, and a lot of the venues are spread out. So uh, we didn't get to see much of it. I do remember taking interest in it, especially, you know, as someone from Boston. You know, I, I grew up uh, probably within a half an hour where Nancy Kerrigan uh, grew up. And uh, like a lot of cities around the country, we Bostonians tend to be very provincial, so I was very much cheering for her and uh, you know caught up in what happened to her so 
uh, it's obviously one of those stories that will be will live forever. And uh, when we talk about <laughs> uh, controversies in American sports, and particularly as it pertains to the Olympics, but doing the Olympics was awesome. You know, the Olympic Games are obviously uh, huge internationally, about as big as anything, especially back then. I think they had the even slightly bigger stature, perhaps worldwide, than they do right now. And the, the opportunity to do three of them was a blessing for sure. How did you learn how to broadcast for bobsled and luge? Because I'm guessing that as a uh, well, I honestly didn't know anything uh, about it. Originally in '92, I was going to do short track speed skating, and it was the first year that that was going to be on the Olympic program. And I remember all oh, I'm going to have to learn about this. And then they called me and said, well, we're going to give you a little bit of a, of a boost, a bigger assignment. I think it was Merlin Olson was supposed to do the bobsled illusion, and he, he did not. I think he left CBS. So uh, they said, we're going to change your assignment. So I went up to Lake Placid, New York, which is where the U.S. bobsled and luge teams train. I think we were covering the luge trials on a CBS Sports Saturday. So I went up there, Bob Hughes from the Luge Association, some of the coaches and competitors were very nice to basically explain to me you know, how the whole thing works. It's not a particularly complicated sport. Um, I actually took a, a luge run and a bobsled run while I was up there. I, I wish I had not done the luge run because that was solo, and uh, I crashed violently into the walls several times, but I won't bore you with the really long story because I've probably told enough long stories, but uh, yeah, I thought it was a great way to learn was to actually do it myself, but you know, the people involved in the sport were very generous with their time, and uh, the analysts were great. Uh, people like John Fee and John Morgan and Bonnie Warner, who were you know longtime competitors in those sports, uh, spent a lot of their time making sure that I was uh, up for it. And you know, a lot of it, Logan, when it starts, I mean, I think the average luge run was probably 45 seconds to a minute, and you know, by the time you give the information, this is Logan Anderson from Minnesota, and blah blah blah. Um, you know, and he's 24 years old and he's, this is his second Olympics. You know, by the time you just spout out the factoids that, uh, the research department has done a great job helping you with, there isn't that much time to say much else anyway. So, uh, it was a great experience. Glad I had the chance to do it. So this is a podcast. We're all about long stories. I want to hear about doing the luge. <laughs> Well, you know, they were walking me up and down the track, and they were explaining to me, I mean, the basics, I said, the, being a loser is not that complicated. They said the, the best loser would probably be a dead person because you, you don't want to move on the sled. The more you fidget, move around, you know, the, the sled swivels, you're, you're putting your body up into the airflow, and you want to lie flat, flat on your back so the air passes over you. If you lift up your upper body, then the air starts slamming into your body or your head, and it slows you down. So, you know, when you see these people on the luge, they're flat on their back. But uh, they also said you need to steer into the turns. You know, if you, if you go straight up into a turn, you're going to go into the wall. So if a turn to the left is coming in, you know, the, you're on your back, and the, it's like a sled. The, the uh, runners are between your legs. So if you want to turn to the left, you'd press in with your right leg, and point the rudders to the uh, left and steer into the turn. But my problem was when you're lying flat on your back and you don't have the course memorized as these real competitors do, it's hard to see the turn coming. So I smashed into the first turn. And then I said, well, I have to lean forward and sit up a little bit to see the turn. Uh, then I realized when you sit up, uh, the back of the luge, back of the sled fishtails like a car on ice that doesn't have enough weight in the back of it. Uh, so you kind of lose control of your direction. So, you know, it's kind of one terrifying happenstance after another. They gave me a helmet and elbow pads and knee pads, and that was it. And I went into the first wall, and my knee pad on my right knee spun around. So every time I hit the wall with my right knee after that, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> jamming your kneecap into a wall of ice at about 40 miles an hour. But, you know, they said I was going about 35 to 40 miles an hour. The competitors at that time were going about 75 miles an hour. So, it certainly gave me an appreciation. It was terrifying enough at the slow speed I was operating at, you know, to know that how fast they're going. Uh, they really need to know what they're doing because, you know, there's a high degree of danger in those sports. You can get seriously injured or killed if, uh, if you're not careful. That was fantastic. I'm glad you told that. <laughs> but now I want to move forward to when you left CBS because it wasn't of your own volition. 
And from what I read, you were quite upset about it to the point where you considered leaving broadcasting. Uh, what was going through your head and what brought you back? Yeah, it was just a hard time uh, personally then. Uh, you know, it was the fall of 1999. You know, as I said, I had kind of ascended up the ladder in part by default because other people had left. But, you know, my situation was getting better and better. I was the number one college football person. You know, they put me on the golf majors, the U.S. Open tennis. You know, my uh, assignment in the 98 Olympics was dramatically upgraded from the bobsled and luge, which I enjoyed. But obviously the ice hockey, especially that was the first year that the NHL players were allowed to play in it. And it was the first year of women's ice hockey, which got a lot of attention, particularly when the U.S. women won the gold medal. And that was a lot of fun for me because two of my really good pals, Ben Smith and Tommy Much, were the coaches of the U.S. women's team. Uh, ben was the head coach. So, you know, it just kind of felt like everything was great in my situation there. And uh, then, uh, you know, we got the NFL back after a four-year hiatus. And I remember getting a call from a prominent person at CBS who said, this is going to be great for you. You're going to do the Super Bowl. I mean, you've been our number one football guy here, so it makes sense. They'll, they'll put you on that. And then uh, that didn't happen. And but the the worst part, Logan, of that whole thing, and it's reason you know I hate the phrase that puts things in perspective for you, but in this case, it really did. You know, my agent Robert Fraley, uh, at that time, in October of '99, late October of '99, was killed in the plane crash with Payne Stewart, and you know my contract was up in December of 1999, but I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was just devastated. Uh, he was one of the best people I've ever known. You know, that's still true. Um, I, I felt horrible for uh, his wife, Dixie, and, uh, you know, just the whole tr enormous tragedy. And he was a great friend. He was much more than an agent, I think, to anybody who represented. You know, sometimes the agents, the, that term doesn't always uh, give the – it's not always a, a – people don't always have a flattering perception of agents. Well, you know, Robert Fraley was a devoutly Christian guy, as wonderful a friend as you could be. You know, I think he really was in it to help people, not for – he could have had many more clients than he did. He just uh, he wanted to make sure he served each of us to the best of his ability, so he limited the number of people that he, he worked with. And uh, so I had no agent, but I wasn't that concerned about it because I said my star was kind of on the rise there, at least I thought. And then, uh, you know, early December of, of uh, 99, I got called in by Sean McManus, who was the president of CBS Sports at the time, and he said, uh, you know, if all my guys were like you, we'd never have a problem, but i uh, got to let you go. So, you know, I think there are a lot of factors at the time. You know, it was said to me that they needed Dick Enberg, and they wanted, uh, you know, Sean McManus was always a huge fan of Dick Enberg, which I totally understand, and that they needed my events and, and my money, which I'm sure they needed a lot more than what I was making at the time. But, uh, you know, I never really understood that, because obviously when you get the NFL back, you need more people, not fewer, because you have all these regional games that require people on a Sunday. So, uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of other things that were at work at that time uh, that, I'm, you know, someday if I write a book, maybe that'll come out. But uh, it was a shock to me. But, you know, as I said earlier, I always believe that God has a plan for your life. And that was a really, really hard time, mostly because of what happened to Robert. But, um, uh, you know, it was it was just hard. You felt like you worked really hard to get there and uh, do a great job and work hard. And, and in some ways it felt like I had to start all over again. You know, fortunately ABC and ESPN gave me the chance to start all over again, almost immediately. And uh, wonderful things have happened since I've been there. So I just uh, trust in God's plan and that uh, he's going to take you where he wants you to be. And, and that's again, what happened. And where that eventually took you a couple years later was, uh, into the Monday Night Football booth in 2016. And uh, everything that I found is that you were really excited about it at the time, but it just didn't necessarily uh, bring the happiness that you thought it would, did not go as well, and obviously your term there was short. Uh, first of all, take us through your feelings right away when you got it and maybe why it wasn't a great fit for you. Well, I was... Really honored. I mean, Monday Night Football is one of the great franchises, maybe the greatest in the history of sports television. I mean, it's had a 50-plus year run now with, uh, you know, a lot of great broadcasters, a lot of memorable games. You know, I think it's lost a little bit, naturally so, because, you know, when we were kids, Monday Night Football, was that, that was it. Now there's Sunday Night Football, Thursday Night Football. 
you know, college games on every night of the week. You know, it's, it's not the standalone event that it used to be. So when people say, well, it's not what it used to be, well, naturally it's not what it used to be because the, you know, the entire landscape is, is different. It doesn't mean that it's not special. It really is special. And that was reinforced for me. You know, when we would, in the two years that I did it, we'd meet every uh, Saturday or Sunday with the teams that were playing in the game. And over and over and over again, you heard coaches and players talk about how jacked up they were to play on Monday Night Football and that it was, you know, a dream of theirs as a kid to play on Monday Night Football. And that hadn't gone away. I mean, I remember Jameis Winston talking about it. Uh, like, you know, he was really emotional about it. So, um, you know, it was a great honor, especially at that time. I think I was, I know I was the fifth play-by-play person in the 47-year history of it. And when your predecessors are Keith Jackson, Frank Gifford, Al Michaels, and Mike Tirico, I mean, that made my, that gave me the, you know, chills just thinking about it when they offered me the job from that standpoint, never mind everything else. And then, you know, the most important part of it for me was, you know, I grew up watching my football with my dad, you know, the, I'd sit on the couch when I was young, you know, he'd let us stay up till halftime, which was late uh, relative to our bedtime on the East coast when we were young kids. But you know, it was one of the highlights of my childhood. I remember, I don't remember anything I looked forward to more as a kid than that time with my dad, watching the game, talking about the game. I think it was a lot of that experience was when we all became kind of analytic thinkers, like me and my uh, brothers um, watching the games with him. Cause he would engage us in conversation about, the players, the play calling, the officiating, the commentary, whatever it was. And, you know, we didn't just sit there and stare blankly at the TV. So uh, it was a, a great opportunity when it came. But, uh, you know, when John Gruden left and went back to coaching, they started to take a look at the, uh, you know, I think the entire operation of Monday Night Football. Um, they made a number of changes. And, you know, I, I had kind of missed college football. There was the opportunity to go back and, uh you know, again, it's worked out great. I'm with Todd Blackledge, who I really enjoy. I love our production team. You know, uh, you know, Monday Night Football, you're kind of at the mercy of the schedule. I think our current administration is doing a great job of working with the NFL to make that relationship better and, and improve the quality of the matchups because that's the most important thing that drives viewership. But, uh, you know, I know every week, uh, given the ESPN's position, in college football, and they do allow me to be involved in the conversations of game selection each week. I know every week we're going to have one of the top college games in the country. And uh, I love the atmosphere and pageantry of college football. The chance to do the playoffs is awesome. You know, our group does one of the semifinals, and then we do the national championship game on the on ESPN radio, which is a real treat. So it's worked out well. I was blessed to have had the opportunity uh, to do Monday Night Football, and I, I will always be grateful for it. And will always remain a, remain a fan of the NFL. College football is known for its crazy environments and uh, fan bases that border on cult-like affinity, and I love it. I, I agree with you 100%. I love college football. What are some of your favorite places to go on the college football path? Wow. It's a great question. It's a hard one to answer just because, you know, I, I think the vast majority of the places we go are awesome. And you look forward to going there. And a lot of them have their own unique traditions and, you know, th- things leading up to the game. But in almost every one of these major college football towns, you know, when you arrive on campus on Thursday, most weeks we get there Thursday, you know, there's already and electricity and energy and people walking around the town in their gear, even the visiting team's gear. And um, I would say just about any place in the SEC is awesome. Uh, Clemson has become one of my favorite places to go. Uh, you know, you know you're going to see a great team when you're there now too, but, you know, the art booth is almost right in the stands. You really feel the electricity, the game there. Um, we did a game at the University of Washington. I think the beauty of that venue is great. And we were at Minnesota this year. You know, those fans are right on top of the field. Uh, they were so passionate that game against uh, Penn State. I, I hesitate to keep naming things because, uh, as I said, almost everywhere we go, you, you look forward to, of course, for me, Syracuse uh, being back in the Carrier Dome, especially this year at the beginning of the year, we did the Clemson game. You know, and Syracuse is coming off the 10-win season of last year, and it was great to see the Dome filled again uh, for the first time in a long time. Uh, you know, Ohio State's great. I love when they do script Ohio and dot the I. University of Nebraska, you know, those people are such 
great fans. You know, they appreciate good play by both teams. They love the Huskers. You know, they're in the, their seats an hour before the game watching the warm-ups. Um, and, again, I feel bad because uh, I feel like by omission I'm probably leaving out other places that deserve the same kind of praise. But those would be the ones that, uh, you know, Texas A&M, great atmosphere. Uh, there's a lot of them. I think I already said the SEC, so that would include Texas A&M. I'm from Nebraska, and that's been my favorite team since childhood. So I'm glad you got around there. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And you know, personally, uh, you know, Scott Frost has become a dear friend. Uh, you know, Matt Davison, who made the great catch for them in their national championship season, the great catch against Missouri. He's become uh, a dear friend to the point where I actually officiated his wedding to his beautiful wife, Allie. So uh, you know, personally, uh, have some connections there as well that as well that make me enjoy. Uh, going there you know there's this you're you live in minnesota you know minnesota nice that's true you know the people are the same way in nebraska i just think people in that iowa is another place i love going you know it's uh and a lot of it is the people in that part of the country are so nice i'm gonna have to edit that part about iowa out (laughs) (laughs) just kidding just kidding but uh, just a couple more questions left they're not necessarily following any train of thought they're just things that i find interesting at the end that I like to throw in there. And one of the things that I like to ask is people who come from places with distinct accents. And you come from Boston, which is definitely one of those places. Did you ever have to do anything to get rid of that accent? Because I don't hear it when you broadcast. Or did you just naturally not have it? I don't really think that I had it. There are certain times, certain words I say where I think it leaks out a little bit. I don't make a conscious effort to not have it. I never took any speech classes at Syracuse or anything like that to get rid of it. Both my parents had it. Wicked hot, as my friends would say. I remember my dad was on CBS on the old NFL Today one day, and one of my hallmates at Syracuse knocked on the door and said, uh, your dad is on TV. He just said that Ken O'Brien has a, a sore arm. What's an arm? And uh, <laughs> so, but we were here first. That's the way people make fun of the Boston accent. I said, you know what? You look up the history of America. We were uh, among the first here. So uh, very proud to be from Boston, but I never really had the accent. So uh, I, I think if you had a harsh regional accent, it would be difficult. You know, I had a young man, Troy Henderson, who was at Virginia Tech, wanted to be a broadcaster. He was an intern for us one summer with the Red Sox. He had a very, very southern accent. And I told him, I think if you want to work on national TV, you at least need to soften that a little bit. You know, I think if you're working in a southern market, it's it's less uh, less of an issue. But I, I just think, um, you know, if, if it's too strong an accent, people get caught up in your accent instead of what you're saying. We were in the same room one time, and I'm sure you didn't know it because I was at the uh, National Sports Media Association convention, and I think that this was you. So if I got this wrong, correct me. But I believe you and Ian Eagle introduced Bill Raftery as his introduction into the Hall of Fame, and you basically turned into a roast of him. (laughs) <laughs> and I've talked with Ian about this, and he said it was all off the cuff. Can you confirm that, or was any of Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, Bill being Bill, he doesn't want to offend anybody. Uh, so rather than have one presenter, he asked both of us to do it because he thought if he asked one or the other, the other guy might be offended. So, uh, and you, you were there, Logan, so you know the – it's like a lot of those dinners that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been to. It goes on and on and on and on forever, and Bill was one of the last people of the night, and – by the time uh, you know we got up there, it was pretty obvious people didn't want to hear two speeches. So we, as we were sitting at our table, we said, let's just go up there. How about I tell a quick story, you tell a quick story, whatever your best, funniest Bill Raftery story is. Bill doesn't want to hear people stand up there and say nice things about him. You know, whenever I've been around him, which is a long, long, long time, uh, you know, we worked together for about 20 years, um, you know, he very quickly deflects praise to the point where you can tell it's uncomfortable. And that's one of the things I love about Bill in a – you know, it's never about him. He's never trying to make it about him, whether it's on or off the air. So even hearing people talk about it, I, so he really wanted it to be a roast. And, uh, you know, and it, I hope it was funny. I think the people in the room thought it was funny. I, I, I do wish we could have stayed up there longer and said uh, all the things about Bill that he deserves as a, as a person and as a friend and as a broadcaster, because uh, he deserved to hear the serious things too. And uh, I think Ian and I tried to uh, jam those things in there in amongst the roast, but uh, 
you know, working with Bill was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me, and, and being his dear friend is uh, an even bigger blessing. It was definitely funny. It's literally the only thing I remember from <laughs> but it was a long night. I know that for sure. It was uh, felt very blessed to present Bill. I mean, there's a million people in our world who love Bill and who would have loved the opportunity to get up there and say something about him. So I, I think Ian and I both felt very honored that uh, we had that opportunity. Working with analysts like Bill Raftery and John Gruden and Jay Billis, who you know are probably bigger stars in a lot of ways than you are. How is how did you learn to make them the star and to spotlight their knowledge and personality as a play-by-play person? Well, they really. I mean, I don't consider myself a star, and I, I think it's very rare that a play-by-play person is. You know, I think we really shouldn't be. In all honesty, I mean, uh, especially on TV. Now, on the radio, uh, you have to be. If, I don't know if the star is the right word, but you're the center of the broadcast because you you have to describe everything. You know, on TV, people can see it. So, uh, you know, you're there to tell good stories and give people the right information, the right stats. And But a big part of your job is to work with the analyst, to put him or her in the best position to succeed and to work with the people in the truck to make that happen, too. So, um, you know, that's a huge part of our job, and you can't have an ego about it. If you do, uh, you're not going to be very happy being a play-by-play person on television. So... Uh, that's the job. All those people you mentioned and many more, you know, I think Chris Spielman and Matt Millen and gosh, I, I have a list. Remember, I have it right here in front of me that I've kept uh, over the years. I've worked with about 160 different analysts in all the different sports that I've done. And, uh, you know, I think almost every single one of them was a great experience and a high percentage of them are still people I keep in contact with. But, uh, when you get to this level, it's it's one of the great things about the job. You know, you're, you're working with people who are great at what they do, and in the vast majority of the cases, they're great people. I mean, Todd Blackledge is a rock star as a human being. Chris Spielman is as fine a man as I know. You know, it's uh, to be able to work with those people, but also just spend time around them and and have them be among your closest friends. Is again, we talk about God having a plan for your life. I'm so grateful to Him that He brought all these people into my life. How long did it take you to go to sleep after calling the six-overtime game uh, for the service? You know, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm just going to go back to the hotel and collapse. You know, the game got over around 1.30 in the morning, and then we had a bunch of you know hits to do for SportsCenter and a couple of the other ESPN platforms. And I remember Coach Bayheim came walking out of the tunnel about 2.15 in the morning. Madison Square Garden was completely empty. And he said, do you think we're in the tournament now? You know, that was one of those many years where Syracuse was always on the bubble. And, you know, to this day, that tradition continues. And, you know, we all had a good chuckle about that. And uh, But I, I remember just getting back to the hotel and lying in bed at 5 in the morning staring at the ceiling. You know, part of it was just responding to text messages. I had hundreds of text messages from people who were saying, you know, this is the most amazing game I've ever seen in my life. And uh, Bob Costas, not to be a shameless name dropper, called me the next day from Hawaii. He was on his honeymoon. He said, I need to tell you this story. I started watching the game. Uh, game goes in the first overtime. We're going to this restaurant that had a beautiful sunset. So I said to my wife, could you call a restaurant and ask him we can push the reservation back 15 minutes. So game goes the second overtime. I asked Jill, could you call again, move it back. So about, about the third overtime, she said, honey, we're not going to see the sunset. And Bob said, well, I need to see the end of this game. So we'll go tomorrow night. <laughs> there was that. And Bob's a Syracuse guy. So he had a rooting interest in it, but I heard from, you know, dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people, uh, who said you know, they couldn't shut it off even with no rooting interest because it was just such a sensational game. You are also friends bef- from before he was really in the movies with Matt Damon. How did you meet and just tell us a story of what it's like to be around him in a social setting? Well, I met him. Um, I mentioned Dan Berkery a long time ago on this, the general manager of Channel 38, who hired me to do the Red Sox game. He had 10 kids. One of them was Liz, who was a great athlete at Harvard, great women's lacrosse player. And I was over having a bite to eat with her one day in Harvard Square. And uh, one of her fellow Harvard students came walking in, Matt Damon, and uh, met him, got talking to him. He's a huge Red Sox fan. I was doing the Red Sox games. His dad, Kent Damon, who unfortunately just passed away a year or so ago, uh, was an even bigger Red Sox fan. So so, you know, why don't you guys come to a game sometime? We sit in our booth, and uh, that started out off a great friendship. And, uh, you know, the neat thing about Matt was uh, 
you know, then I'm going to say he was 19 years old, maybe 20. And, uh, and, uh, you know, but just, you just so impressed by what a mature, great person he was and a lot of fun to be around his dad too. And, uh, you know, but he didn't have 10 cents then. And, you know, to see him now is one of the most famous people in the world, really. I mean, we think these sports people are celebrities, but, uh, you know, a lot of people who are uh, big celebrities in sports can walk in places and not get recognized. It's very hard for movie stars of Matt's ilk to walk anywhere without being recognized. And, uh, you know, to see him now, and he's still the same person. You know, he's still the same thoughtful, kind, uh, great friend. You know, he's one of those people who uh, makes an effort to reach out, even though he's incredibly busy. And, um, you know, I remember a lot of things that he said to me when my dad died, you know, the things that stick in your head. But, uh He's a great guy and a, obviously an enormously talented guy and, and a huge sports fan. I mean, he is legit. I mean, sometimes these Hollywood people, you wonder if they really are uh, sports fans to the extent to which they say they are. But uh, he is, and Ben Affleck certainly is too. Give us what I like to call a broadcast horror story. And it's one of the last questions I ask just about everybody who comes on this show. A time where you're doing a broadcast where... Everything goes wrong. Your vantage point is awful. The, all of your equipment <laughs> catches on fire simultaneously. Uh, that type of a thing. You've been at this long enough. I'm guessing you have a couple. Give us one or two of your favorites. Uh, yeah, there are probably two that come to mind. Uh, you know, both kind of very early on. Uh, when I was still in college doing the Syracuse Chiefs minor league games, the state of New York had a basically a statewide Olympics called the Empire State Games. And uh, now there are state games in a lot of places, a lot of states around the country. But this was one of the first, and it was a big deal. And so the PBS stations in New York combined their resources, and they put on Olympic-style coverage on the PBS stations, you know, in Albany, Buffalo, Syracuse, New York City. So I got hired to do the soccer by myself. So, uh, you know, I went to the Empire State headquarters and got all the uh, questionnaires that all the participants uh, in the soccer filled out and I knew everything about every kid on every one of these teams. So, uh, we're going to do the state championship game and I am amped up. I'm really nervous. That's probably 19 or 20. I don't think I'd ever been on statewide TV before. And they throw it to me and the game's about to start and there's a delay. I can't really figure out what's going on. I don't have an analyst. So, you know, just talking and talking. And finally I realized the referee thought that one team was red and one team was orange. And he thought that the, colors were too close together and he couldn't tell them apart so he had them get these pullovers that didn't have any numbers on them and like a vest and put them on one team so i couldn't identify anybody on one of the teams <laughs> which uh is pretty tough to do you know entire soccer game talking about you know the red-headed kid over to the tall kid over to the uh, you know so at best you know you tried to figure it out the best you could but uh, that was certainly a nightmare. You're almost hoping just go to some, you know, go to archery or something and take this off. But uh, and then another time when I was very young doing the Red Sox pregame show when I was probably 22 or three years old, right, you know, basically right out of Syracuse, uh, we had a half-hour pregame show right before the Red Sox game, and I went in to uh, shave right before we went on the air and put my tie on, and so uh, I come back out on the set. Um, Amy Rosenfeld is our stage manager at the time. She now has a huge job at ESPN. She basically started the ACC network, but you know, back then she was my age, just starting out stage manager. So they're counting in my ear. We're coming on the air, 10, 9, 8. I look down, there's a red drop of something on the, uh, on the set, on the desk. And I said to Amy, was somebody having lunch on the, on the desk? And, and, or was somebody bleeding? And she looks up and she says, oh my God, it's you who's bleeding. And it was just one of those little small shaving cuts, but unfortunately, that it looked like someone had basically stabbed me in the chin right before he went on. So now we're, you know, three, two, one, go. And I start reading, and I'm looking in the monitor out of the corner of my eye, and there's literally from my chin all the way down to the collar of my white shirt is a stream of blood while I am. And Amy says this tape exists somewhere, that she might have it. I hope she doesn't. I hope she's just teasing me, but... Uh, so I start reading really fast and trying to get into the first you know, tape package. And the people in the control room are saying, you're like, slow down, slow down. And I, I wanted to say to them, you know, are you looking at the monitor? <laughs> so 
Uh, those would be the two that kind of come racing to mind. There's many others. You know, I've accidentally cursed on the air. You know, and I, I wanted to say one time that a player was one hit shy of 2,300, and unfortunately I transposed <laughs> some of the words, but uh, or the letters anyway. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if, for whatever reason, you were tuning into a game during some downtime? Uh, who are working today? Uh, Jim Nance. Well, there's a lot of them. I have so much respect for uh, you know so many guys. Um, Jim Nance for sure. Al Michaels. Uh, you know, at our place. Uh, Dan Schulman. I mean, again, I hate to answer questions like this only because I'm afraid I'm going to forget somebody who's blatantly obvious. You know, I think Mike Breen is tremendous. Mike Emmerich on hockey. Um, gosh, Joe Buck. You know, he and I become good friends. You know, I think he gets way too much grief. You know, if you really pay attention to what he's saying and how he does it, I think he's outstanding. Um, you know, at our place, Dave O'Brien, all the guys who, who do football and basketball for us, Dave Tash, I think is really, really underrated. Bob Wischusen, um you know, there's, uh, I could almost name most people that, you know, Ian Eagle we talked about earlier. You know, I think just about everyone who, it's very rare that there's somebody who, is working at a high level in this business. So I hear on a game and I say, well, why is this person here? You know, I think every, or the vast majority of the people who are working at a really high level and network sports play by play are there because they do a tremendous job. So as I said, I, I'm, I feel bad at answering that question in part because I know I just missed a bunch of people and I, I could continue to rattle off names. You know, when I was growing up, it to me, it was the, the guys who did all the Red Sox games, Ned Martin, Ken Coleman, I was so lucky. Bob Wilson and Fred Cusick were doing the Bruins games. They were both Hall of Famers. Johnny Most, the legendary Celtics announcer. You know, Gil Santos was doing the Patriots. He was uh, one of the great radio play-by-play people of all time uh, in any sport, in my opinion. Um, you know, so uh, I had some great examples locally. And then nationally, when I was a kid, I, you know, Kurt Gowdy, uh, Dick Enberg, Jack Buck, uh, among others, were you know people I thought were tremendous. All right. Well, that is all I've got for you today. We're already over an hour, and that's what I promised you, so I will let you get on your way. But once again, Sean McDonough from ESPN and uh, one of the voices for the Red Sox on WEEI, the Red Sox Radio Network. And, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Logan. Anytime. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Remember, Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, your host, and thanks for tuning in. And next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.